Hello and welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, one of the greatest songwriters ever, ever in the whole world, Shane Carter from the band Dimmer, from the Straight Jacket Fits, from the Double Happies, from stuff he's done under his own name, from the board games, from just so much goodness. He is, oh, and the writer of one of my favorite rock biographies ever, autobiographies ever. More on that in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnitapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire. But this week, I got to give all thanks to Tristan and my friend, Dave Martin, friend of the show, Dave Martin, who set this thing up um, and introduced me to Shane, which was, uh, you know, I, I can't think of enough for doing that. So thank you, Dave. And thank you, Tristan, for all your hard work too, Tristan. I'm, I'm not, I'm not overlooking you, but I just got to give credit where it's due this week. Um, love both you guys very much. Thank you. Uh, and they can get the message to me. Well, Tristan, get the message to me. Don't send Dave an email. I don't, I don't think he wants to be forwarding emails to me, but send Dave an email and say, thanks. You know, if you're look, if you enjoy this episode, thank Dave. You can find me on various forms of social media, though, at left for Damien on, well, Twitter and Instagram. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about this podcast, letting everyone you know know that you listen to this thing, and it goes all over the place. Today, we are going to Dunedin, New Zealand to, to talk about punk rock. We go all over to do this. Um, you can also subscribe to it and rate it on your platform of choice. Thank you to all the people that do. And you can uh, head over to patreon.com. Thank you. Thank you to everyone that goes over to patreon.com slash punk and supports the show that way. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible without Vans and, and their support of this thing. Years ago, they came aboard now and said, do what you do. Just don't lose money on it and we'll help you cover the costs. And they have done that. And it's been amazing. So thank you them for uh, believing in this thing. And been believing in this little podcast. We are a very small podcast in the grand scheme of things, but by gosh, is it fun. And uh, <laughs> they enjoy it too, so that's great. And hopefully you enjoy it as well. Um, speaking of enjoying, this is why I do this thing, so I can talk to people that I've always wanted to talk to. Uh, Shane Carter is a hero of mine. Shane Carter is someone that... Um, I was first introduced to his music by, uh, a friend of mine, Jerry, when I bought records off him one time, he was a massive flying nun record collector and he brought a bunch of singles over for me to buy. And I, I looked through the box and I'm like, what's this? And he explained who the double happies were. And I, I bought it. And the other way is one of the greatest songs ever. And that's, that's the first time I heard a Shane Carter song. And it's just gone from there. You know, he is uh, an artist who has played in a lot of bands. And now, if you're not familiar with Dunedin, New Zealand, let me fill you in. He, Shane goes into a little bit of details on this on the show as well. It's a town of about 120 some odd thousand people. And yet, it has, by per capita, the greatest number of incredible indie punk bands ever. Just all sorts of these bands, like, and it's not just, you know, this kind of, you know, Dunedin sound, the Flying Nun record sound kind of, which is this perfect blend of, of psychedelic rock and punk and Velvet Underground and Sid Barrett. It's like, it's just, 
you know, this, this perfect alchemy, but there's also like these great noise bands and there's these great, there's just so much great music from this town and it's so small. It's tiny, 120 some thousand people, you know, like that, that, that's minute. And like, you know, yeah, anyway, he goes into this. We talk more about this on the episode. It just, it boggles the mind. Uh, so after, you know, hearing the double happies with Shane, I've gone from there and yeah, there's, it's just unending, you know, his first band, the board games to stuff he's doing now. He is, he, he, he is a genius. He is a genius of the uh, songwriting variety. Um, if I want to suggest checking out any song, just Randolph going home, Randolph's going home, which was a single that he did with Peter uh, Jeffries. And my God, that is one of the most rent heart wrenching songs I've ever heard in my life. Oh, I could ramble on forever about Shane. <laughs> this is one of the ones where, oh, I, I love talking about it. I got to talk about his book though. He wrote a, uh, an autobiography a couple years ago called Dead People I Have Known, and it is fantastic. Um, it, like, even if you're not necessarily a fan of this style of music, just from a, uh, a, a rock biography, it's just, it's, it's fascinating, you know, just, just, just from a, uh, a personal story, it is an amazing story of someone's journey and identity and, and just dealing with racism and he's, he's, he's had such a, uh, it's a heavy story. It's, it's, I, I can't even begin to scratch the surface with, uh, Shane. Hopefully this episode scratches some of the musical surface, but I strongly, strongly recommend you write you right. You read this book because, uh, damn, damn, it is a powerful book. Okay. I have rambled on a lot and I could ramble on for a lot longer if I didn't stop myself, uh, right here. I hope this made some sense because I just wanted to gush. Oh, I just wanted to gush. Okay. Anyway, sit back, relax and enjoy Shane Carter on Turned Out a Punk. <laughs> Shane, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, hi there, Damon. Uh, yeah, no, real pleasure to be here, man. Well, as I was just telling you off air, I'm a huge fan, and I, I kind of I think it's impressive when you have when you talk to an artist who's done it like twice with a band, but you've done it over and over again with just numerous projects that just you know are always amazing, always interesting, and then on top of that, you add to it an incredible rock writer as well with your autobiography. So you're a dream guest for this thing. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, no, oh, yeah, I think I'll just, yeah, as far as the music goes, I think I'll pretty much rock till I drop, even if no one's listening. So, <laughs> oh, well, it's just sort of this affliction that I can do nothing about. Well, you've got a, you've got a, uh, a, an older, an aging uh, young man in Toronto who's going to always be listening, I promise you. But I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is, Shane, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Right. Well, um, yeah, you know, well, I'm getting on now. I'm in, I'm in my mid fifties. And, um, so I was around actually as a kid for the first wave and, um, yeah, as I wrote in my book, I'd sort of heard, you know, like this would be the late seventies or something. And, um, you know, I was at high school and, um, um, I probably heard first heard about punk rock when I was about 12 and I just heard this rumor about, um, yeah, I wrote about this in my book, how I heard about this musical movement where they vomited over the audience and yeah. um, apparently had sex on stage and all this <laughs> stuff. And I, you know, I was a wee boy sitting at the bottom of the world in New Zealand. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And, 
Yeah, but uh, my actual crucial moment, we used to have um, one rock show in New Zealand um, called Radio with Pictures, which was um, buried late on a Saturday night. And um, we only had two TV channels at that time. And um, yeah, so your fix was, um, your musical fix, you know, they sort of played all the, you know, the sort of uh, more alternative stuff, I suppose, from overseas. And um, yeah, and it was hosted by this guy called Barry Jenkins, uh, who was called um, Dr. Rock. And he was a um, DJ uh, on a pirate radio station. And um, yeah, a lovely man. Uh, he's still around, Barry. And um, yeah, but anyway, he played the Sex Pistols doing pretty vacant. And um, yeah, um, yeah, I was completely ripe for the plucking. <laughs> and um, yeah, uh, when I saw that, it was just so... It just shat over everything else that I'd seen up to that point. And um, yeah, it was just so primal and so cool. And also, yeah, like... Um, I also wrote in my book that the whole punk ethos, you know, was it made, you know, being rejected and outside and being an outsider and alone the proper place to be. And um, it really gave people like me, who was kind of quite a, um, um, oh, I don't know, uh, I, can't, I can't actually remember what the word is at the moment, but I was I sort of wasn't, you know, I found it hard to connect to anything. And um, uh, it really gave me um, a flag to rally around, yeah. And, yeah. And then a friend um, at high school somehow had a, had a cassette of Nevermind the Bollocks. And, um, yeah, I just listened to that, you know, incredibly loudly on my headphones on um, uh, on, the, on the stereo in my parents' lounge or our lounge. And, yeah, it really, really blew me out of the water. And, um Possibly around the same time too. That's when I heard about the punk rock bands that had just um, uh, started springing up around uh, in New Zealand. Uh, there's a band called the Suburban Reptiles in Auckland. Um, but even better, there was a band called The Enemy in, um, in Dunedin, and uh, that was Chris Knox and people like that. And they're a bit older than us, but uh, when you had such a um, shining example, <laughs> so close to home. Um, yeah, um, it was great. So, yeah, that's what sparked me off. So what kind of stuff was that guy playing on that radio show kind of prior to the Sex Pistols? Like, was it like pub rock stuff? Like, what was sort of the the precursor to punk in New Zealand at that time for you, or at least what you were observing? Yeah, uh, what did they – well, before I saw the Sex Pistols, they were playing stuff like I, – I don't know, maybe it was sort of pre-punk stuff like um, – um, um, Dr. Feelgood and mm -hmm. um, The Tubes and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wasn't so much into the Dr. Feelgood kind of thing. Cause to me, that was a wee bit pub, pub rock. But um, um, And The Tubes were sort of like this sort of, I don't know, kind of um, burlesque spectacle or something. But um, <laughs> uh, the, the Pistols um, really took it to the nitty-gritty. And um, I still love the Sex Pistols. I went along and saw them when they did their uh, Reformation tour and at some time in the mid-'90s. And... I've seen this really sad performance on the Letterman show and, you know, where they're all morphed into middle-aged men and it sounded terrible and they looked terrible. And so I went along to this gig thinking it was going to be terrible and they came out and opened with bodies and um, it was a killer show. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was bodies. What a great pile of pus just to throw over the audience first, you know, first song in. And um, yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, yeah, and it was you know it was just sort of once again just a great reminder that you know if it's good, it's always going to be good. And um, you know, it's the same you know from going along and if you see anyone who's good, no matter what what part of their career, you know, that's it was like seeing the Stooges, you know, a few years ago or something. You know, it was the Stooges. Or something. Um, I don't know. I can remember, uh, yeah, you know, uh, there's this bracket where I saw um, Neil Young, Al Green, and Leonard Cohen, who are all old people at that point. I saw them in a two two month window, and I thought, well, once a master, always a master, you know, and, mm-hmm. or whatever the feminine equivalent of a master is. And yeah, so you, the good stuff always lasts, you know, whether it's Beethoven or the Sex Pistols. Yeah, we we opened for the Stooges. Um you know, whenever it was when Ron Ashton was still alive and it, we were like, how good could they be? You know, like they're in their sixties, like we're going to blow them off the stage and they just wiped the floor with us. It was embarrassing how good they were. They were just unbelievable. Oh, good on you, man, for thinking that you're going to upstage the uh, Stooges though. That's <laughs> attitude. Yeah, of course. You got to go in with that attitude because like, you know, and, and I tried my best, you know, I had a cordless mic. I ran all over that theater, um, but uh, Iggy came out and within one song showed me who the boss was. But like, it's like you're saying, like, you know, you, you talk about pro wrestling in the book, actually. But like in wrestling, there's this thing that as you get older and you become a wrestler, you know, you you get less physically able to do the things you once were able to do. But you get better at what you your your art. So you're able to kind of do do a lot more with a lot less and and still capture that audience. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. But um. Yeah, but um, one thing about my Sex Pistols experience too is I was sort of standing there waiting for them to come on stage and sort of, sort of dreading what it was going to be like. The roadie came out and he played a chord on Steve Jones's guitar and um, I thought, fuck me, that's the guitar sound from Never Mind the Bollock. So at that <laughs> point, my excitement, so yeah, kind of. <laughs> um, I, I, this is something that I used to bring up on the show a lot, but I've kind of like stopped bringing it up as much. But, you know, I was watching like an old, old video clip with yourself from uh, Friends of the Enemy. And uh, there's a band playing behind you in a in a pub and you're like, oh, they're doing a Clash cover and you're really dismissive of it. Are you more of a Sex Pistols fan than a Clash fan? <laughs> uh, I was such a little shit back then, but uh, yeah, <laughs> Oh no, I like the Clash, but um, yeah, but uh, I, to be quite honest, when people when they got really big in sort of stadium, I don't know, I didn't actually, I was never a fan of the latest stuff. I actually, well, I loved the first album was great, and um, I actually really liked Give Them Enough Rope, which was quite maligned, but um, I thought they had some great tunes on it, man. You know? Yeah, and, no, uh, I I hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, so I thought there was a great rock record, and but yeah, sort of later on, I don't know, I sort of lost interest really, but yeah, no, the Pistols were my Pistols, I really love the Buzzcocks, you know, I've always mm-hmm. liked pop tunes and good tunes, so, um, you know, out of that, you know, uh, one of the first songs our band learnt was New Rose by The Dam, that's an all-time classic. Um, yeah, but, you know, so for my first set, when I formed my first band, Board Games, you know, we played, what did we play? We played New Rose, um, uh, yeah, we actually ended up playing quite a few, news, uh, covering quite a few New Zealand songs, actually, and, um, yeah, uh, was, uh, the other oh I want of course I want to be your dog was the first song that we learned which I think puts us you know in the company of about a billion garage fans <laughs> and, and uh, yeah so but you know we 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 sort of started with the good stuff right at the top and then of course you know um, 
I noticed what was happening around us in our own scene was, you know, that became equally, if not more important, because it was happening right in our face. Um, earlier on, you mentioned that sort of pub rock stuff that was happening, you know, more in the UK with Dr. Feelgood, but there's definitely like bands like, I guess, Gary Havoc and the Hurricanes and stuff like that happening in, in New Zealand at the time. Was that informative on you at all, or is, is that something you weren't really into? No, I wasn't really, uh, yeah, I wasn't really into that sort of, um, yeah, the pre-punk stuff in New Zealand because, you know, the whole thing is when you're a kid like that, your job is to kick over the statues, you know? And mm -hmm. so, you know, when kids these days are kicking over my statue, I just think, well, good on them, you know, that's the way it works. And, uh, yeah, so, um, no, not really. Um, you know, I can remember saying to my mother when I was about 14 that I was never going to listen to any music apart from punk rock, and that's pretty much my agenda for the first couple of years, yeah. Um, so uh, when did you first see The Enemy? I know you talk about it in the book, but just, uh, like, what was that like seeing, you know, as you know, as you kind of put it, like a young band around you um, doing it? Um, well, yeah, well, like I say, they were a wee bit older. To be honest, I never saw The Enemy because um, we were too young to go to the dances. And uh, But uh, Chris Knox, the singer from The Enemy, um, he fronted a band that came and played at our high school dance and he got kicked off by the school principal after about four songs. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I'll also describe quite, um, yeah, in quite, in quite a lot of detail in the book. But um, when I saw Chris Knox perform, you know, this is a dude who was walking around in a mohawk with a mohawk in, in Dunedin, which is this town of a, you know, a little more than 100,000 people at the bottom of the world. And uh, basically, you know, um, you know, the youth culture was violent, um, cowboys beating up university students. And for a person like that to appear on the scene, um, yeah, when I saw him perform with that band, A, I was really scared, and, uh, and B, I um, was really excited um, uh, and empowered to see someone that different and uh, who was just way beyond the mainstream and outside all that stuff. And... And, and he seemed empowered by that too. And um, it was incredibly inspirational. And um, Chris remained an inspirational figure for a long time, yeah. Yeah, they're like, you know, I guess there's no records, but just there's a lot of live footage, like surprisingly the amount of uh, video footage of that band that's out there. Yeah, well, there's a classic, um, there's, there's a classic clip on, on YouTube of them doing Pull Down the Shades, which was um, one of their um, sort of early hits, if you can describe it as that. And, um, that catches it, you know, Chris is there with his mohawk and, um, yeah, you know, the band's kicking ass and, uh, yeah. Um, but also, they also had really good songs and later on the enemy would um, uh, transform into a band called Toy Love and, you know, um, Toy Love is a live band, you know, their records never did them justice. As a live band, they were amazing and um, they were really... a big influence and sort of the leaders for all us younger bands coming through. And, you know, there's stories of Martin Phillips from the Chills, you know, he was, because he was too young to get into the pub, he'd actually set up um, deck chairs outside for us to go along and sit outside and listen to Toy Love's gigs. And, <laughs> uh, you know, my second my second ever gig was when we were, uh, with my band was when we were asked for our support Toy Love and um, at an all, all ages concert, and um, yeah, as I said in my book too, it was like being asked to open for the pistols, it really meant a lot. Um, 
you mentioned like, you know, covering the damned and, and, you know, in the, in the board games, where were you getting those records? Like, were they coming in as imports or is this something you're just hearing on the radio and, and trying to dub copies of, or like where you, cause I, like, I know from trying to get, you know, flying nun records here, how big that divide is, you know, to get those physical copies. Well, that's right, man. And, you know, like if you, if you go, if you're talking about the late seventies or early eighties, you know, that's the dark ages. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, you know, records, you know, if you imported a record, it took two or three months to arrive. Uh, you know, we'd get the enemy and all that kind of stuff three months after it had been released. And but uh, I think people were just importing stuff. It certainly wasn't played on, wasn't played on any, it would be played on that re- television program that I was talking about mm-hmm. and um, radio pitches on the Sunday nights. So that would uh, turn a lot of people, turn a lot of people onto stuff. And yeah, people would just import records and, um, yeah, you know, with the fervency that people do when they're when they're really into stuff, and I think also um, because we're so far away from the rest of the world, and the rest of the world is basically incomprehensible because none of us had really left our town, um, and you know, the the rest of the world was basically another planet. Mm. Um, in some ways, that made the whole a lot of those records seem a lot more exotic and a lot more powerful because we could kind we could kind of idealize them. And there's nothing in our face to sort of, you know, prove anything to the contrary. So it just sort of made it more romantic and more mystical and, yeah, uh, yeah, just more powerful and made you more committed to the records too. So um, there was one thing, you know, in Dunedin amongst our small group, there were some real fervent record collectors. And, um, you know, one thing in Dunedin is a lot of really good record collections and, um, you know, we were listening to stuff like, you know, all the German stuff like Can and all that kind of stuff and Big Star and all that. Uh, you know, um, the Cramps were a big band for us in their first couple of albums. Um, suicide, early Suicide. But, you know, we listened to that stuff when it was coming out and uh, we tuned completely into that stuff. So even though we were far away and um, kind of ignorant about the um, – uh, the rest of the world, you know, we weren't about the music, you know. Um, it, was quite mm. a, it was a very music literate community. Uh, we, there were some older people in there. There's a guy called Roy Colbert who ran a second hand record store in, um, uh, in Dunedin. Uh, he was a great figure. He, too, he was the first person who showed me Jimi Hendrix. So I always like, I was 13. I thought Jimi Hendrix was a hippie and that I should hate him. But uh, he showed me some of that stuff and I love that. He turned us on to all the people's records and. Uh, all the Nuggets records and um, all that kind of stuff was a really big influence on the early Dunedin scene too. It's funny because the way you're describing, you know, the, the the coveting of the artifact of these punk records in New Zealand, is, it feels like that's what it was in reverse with the Flying Nun records here. You know, like I got into it much later than a lot of people, but it was almost like this cult thing where you just you coveted these records so much, like you know, and it was so rare to find them, and that when you did, it was like you know, finding this, this, you know, lost, you know, great relic. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, um, everyone on the scene would be completely chuffed that they sort of turned, <laughs> you know, that was sort of turned around, you know, for, for them as well. But yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, it was real cool. Um, and, you know, it's kind of real cool that, uh, that, you know, that the flying on stuff, especially the early stuff was recognized like that. And, but I think, you know, when you're talking about the people's records and all that kind of stuff, it's just sort of in that great tradition, you know, of, people or kids in their practice space with nothing to lose and more importantly, nothing to gain, 
um, just just trying to rock it, you know, and there was no consequence, you know, so you just tried to rock it and that was the reward, you know, and um, that's always been a really great thing about Dunedin is that it's um, there's no golden egg to chase and, uh, um, and you're also allowed to fail and, um, you know, you only do good stuff by risking failing and uh, also, yeah, it's... A, you know, you basically take it for as a given that there's going to be no one listening, and in some ways, it's a very liberating thing. You know, you mentioned the Buzzcocks earlier, and when I was in New Zealand, I picked up a copy that's like a, an actual New Zealand pressing of a Buzzcocks record, and apparently there was like a pressing plant, like EMI had a pressing plant until the very late '70s or the very early '80s, and then they they dumped the press into the bay or something in Auckland, uh, according to legend, I guess. But there there were like punk records that were pressed from international artists in New Zealand, right? I actually didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that. Maybe there was. Like, I couldn't confirm or deny. I know that with my own records, you know, we, we imported them from overseas, basically. Or, you know, the record store did it. You went to the record store and they'd get it. But um, I, I actually haven't got any memory of stuff being pressed here. Maybe they did, you know, just... Uh, Maybe at one point the major labels here were releasing that stuff and printing up their own copies, but I'm not actually sure. Yeah, they apparently have like uh, just color, not not photocopies, I guess, but like some sort of like color just reproduction of the sleeve. Like it's not done from the printing films. It's it's very nerdy, as I told you. It gets very nerdy really? on this podcast. Ah, okay, yeah, didn't know about that. Um, uh, speaking of which, like. Were, were you into that AK-79 comp when it came out? Because obviously Toy loves on it, but, you know, once again, it's more, it's, it seems like it's like, a, you know, different than what's going on in Dunedin for the most part. Oh, you know, that was, AK-79 was a really important, um, really important record here. You know, there's always this sort of regional, um, you know, comp- not competition or regional resentment. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Auckland's a far bigger city and it's sort of always trendier and, you know, and uh, so Dunedin Nights were always quite suspicious of it. But, um, yeah, look, the first um, Suburban Reptile songs, Saturday Night Stay at Home, their first single, classic single. Um, yeah, look, and, you know, um, my band, we covered Mr. X from The Scavengers. That was uh, one of the first songs I learned on guitar. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, we, we also covered I Am A Rabbit by Proud Scum. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Suicide 1 and Suicide 2 by Proud Scum, classic New Zealand punk singles. And uh, the swingers tracks on on AK seventy nine. The swingers were a class outfit, and uh, yeah, and I love that record. And um, yeah, it was kind of cool. But you know, once again, if you're talking about overseas being another planet, well, Auckland was another planet for us as well. You know, I'd never been out of the South Island, and um, uh, yeah, so that was kind of like sort of that was almost like music from overseas as well, but. Uh, yeah, it was cool that, you know, there's just these pockets of kids, you know, all off on the same trip. You know, you mentioned that regional resentment. And when I was in Auckland, you know, going around record stores, I went to one record store and talked to a guy who actually, I think, played drums in the Tearaways at one point, this guy, Carrie. And I mentioned that I was looking for some Flying Nun records and he was just so dismissive. Like, why are you looking for that stuff? That's not, I'm like, oh, I I love it. It's kind of like New Zealand punk to me. He's like, oh, that's not punk. Like, blah, blah, blah. Like, it does feel like there is that that regional divide. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, well, there was a lot of suspicion um, of all the Flying Nun outfits at the start. All the proper musicians, you know, completely dismissed it. All the industry completely dismissed it. You know, there's there's amateur shambles. And, um, yeah, there are probably people who resent it or, 
we were actually, you know, just jealous of all the attention, <laughs> basically. And, um, but, you know, I don't know, uh, music's so objective, man. And, um, you know, if we all like the same things, it'd be pretty damn boring. You know, it'd be a world of, a world of McDonald's. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned that, well, we, I guess we got to talk about it now that that sort of like thing that we're kind of building to is this Dunedin music explosion that starts. And I guess the board games, that first 12 inches phenomenal. Did that come out when you were still a band or that come out kind of posthumously? Um, yeah, look, we actually recorded that a year after we split up. So, um, yeah, at that point, I think we we're all, um, I can remember I was at the, you know, but at that point I was at the decrepit age of about 17 or something <laughs> when, when we um, reconvened to record that record. But, um, yeah, board games were a really good live band, and when we recorded that EP, a lot of we did it for posterity, just because you know we had some good tunes, and we'd never played outside of Dunedin, and we were around for two and a half years, and we got to play little more than twenty gigs because we couldn't play in pubs and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, we did it more for posterity, but you know, I always felt you know when we did that, the whole the Dunedin scene at that point was sort of moving on, you know, beyond punk and. Uh, you know, uh, the clean had sort of arrived and they're sort of doing something just a wee bit more. Um, uh, it was a sort of a different sound from your trademark kind of, you know, punk puzzle, puzzle get kind of thing. And so, yeah, so I felt like, um, if, if I can remember how I felt when I was 17, like sort of things had moved on a bit, but it was, it was important for us to get our songs down. And, um, yeah, you know, for a young band, we had real good tunes and, uh, uh, so and it, people still like that stuff and I had this really surreal moment it's a few years ago now and I was playing in um, Salt Lake City and someone yelled out Joe 90 which is <laughs> one of the uh, board games <laughs> tracks and it was so weird to be standing well it was weird enough standing in Salt Lake City <laughs> and for someone to yell that out it was, yeah, it was pretty random <laughs> well it caused a little bit of dissent in my band when i went to the record store next door and scooped our drummer on a copy of who killed colonel mustard so it, it does have a resonance even in my band to this day yeah, cool, man. yeah. but uh yeah like i so say i'm glad that there was an uh, we always thought it was a bit more poppy than uh we, you know because we we're actually quite um um quite you know blistering young band and we were sort of oh, it's a bit poppy that record and blah 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 but yeah I'm, I'm, I'm glad there's um some evidence of that band around yeah like it's it's you know you mentioned how it's like you know kind of poppy and it's definitely punkier than i guess you know you do stuff with the double happies but it does have that kind of i don't know there's just sort of like this this extra quality to these bands and it's the songwriting like it's wild how many incredible songwriters were in that scene. Like, it's like, you know, hearing about the Seattle scene and then actually hearing all the bands and they turn out to be good. Like you're all unbelievable songwriters. Like there, there must be like, you know, one in 20 people must be a, a classic songwriter in that town. <laughs> uh, yeah. Look, I, I actually don't know how that turned out because it was weird and, now this town of, a, uh, of uh, was 120,000 people actually produced all these bands and uh, there's one weird um, time in the early 90s when there was um, a dozen bands in Dunedin that had American record deals and <laughs> um, uh, yeah for that to happen from this place in the middle of nowhere um, is pretty amazing and I don't know what the sociological theory or what the reason for all these for that generation of you know, really good or interesting musicians emerge from this one obscure place. I really don't know why that happened. I think it was just sort of 
it was a perfect storm in a lot of ways. There was this pocket of disaffected kids, you know, that punk meant anyone could get up there and do it, you know. You didn't have to have music training. That You just had to have the spirit. And, if, you know, the spirit is the backbone of, of, of rock and roll, you know. And um, so it's certainly not about playing scales. I didn't. I still don't know a scale, and um, I think that's worked to my advantage. And uh, yeah, um, yeah, perfect storm. And uh, we just sort of started. It was a shared scene, shared practice rooms, and we inspired each other and competed against each other. You know, go along. And someone that weekend had written a killer fucking tune, and it made me go back home and, and work even harder. And also, you know, Dunedin was an incredibly conservative place, and it was violent and um, very white, very violent, um, quite working class, no nonsense. And you know, we all got beaten up on the streets, and uh, that just made you more committed to it, you know. And uh, you know, the car boys would turn up to our dances and smack over everybody, and um, uh, yeah, so you literally had to be willing to die almost for your music. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so we we're all definitely committed to it. But I, you know, I I, f- I firmly believe that you know, like um, great art or you know, or any kind of art has to have something to react against, and um, we had plenty to react against, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and then this is very dark, and this very conservative, um, critical little country, and um, uh, so yeah, there was plenty of um, juice to put into our wheels. You mentioned the carboys, and, and there's quite a few harrowing stories in the beginning of the book about dealing with carboys showing up, and as you're saying, like fighting everyone and, and beating up people for no reason. But what was that scene like? Like, what's sort of comparable to that? Were they almost like teddy boys? Like, are they old rocker greaser types? Like, who are these people? They're just uh, youths, um, a bit older than us generally, because um, that was the bad thing. They're older and bigger than us, and they'd, mm-hmm. they'd get tanked up in South Dunedin and get pissed jump in their cars. What they used to do before beating up us up was they'd beat up the university students. And they called that scarfy bashing because um, uh, university students, you'd tell university students because they're generally wearing a scarf because it was so cold down there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so they'd beat up the students. And then when we arrived on the scene, little kids um, dressed weird, um, mm-hmm. we were um, obvious targets. And... Um, yeah, uh, but like I say, New Zealand's always had, a, uh, I guess humanity is violent, but um, New Zealand for all its sort of um, serene beauty and all that kind of stuff has always had a very quite dark, violent undertow to it. You know, it's always been present in our communities. And um, yeah, and also, you know, if you dared to be different, well, you're um, pretty immediately stomped down. And um, uh, so um, that's what made us targets, I guess. Yeah, it was, it was really ugly. It was quite outrageous. I can remember doing an interview recently with sort of um, um, uh, with someone on the radio, um, this quite respected broadcaster, and she she said, "What people would jump out of their cars and start beating you up?" And I was like, "Yep, yeah." Pretty much what happened. Well, yeah. it's it's interesting because like you look at you know other scenes where that seemed to happen, and like you know California comes to mind right away, and Los Angeles, and and it kind of that birthed hardcore, you know, like it ultimately made the scene harder and more aggressive, but it seems like it had 
you know, kind of a, not saying that it didn't make you violent and aggressive internally, but like, you know, on the art that you're producing, like it seemed to have a completely different effect. Like it almost like you became more committed to, to exploring it. Um, oh, oh, sure. Look, it, it completely drew the line, you know, and, uh, you know, w- what side are you on? I think at the same time too, we had the um, Springbok tour in 1981, which was when, the South African rugby team was invited to New Zealand to play despite the racist apartheid policies. And that actually almost resulted in a virtual civil war in New Zealand um, where thousands of people took to the streets before every every match that the South Africans played to protest. And um, the cops um, bashed the shit out of them. And uh, it caused Mm -hmm. a, a really huge divide in our community and it was pretty much split up the middle um, I guess, you know, maybe even with the Trump situation in America at the moment, with the divide between the populace, you know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was like that. And I guess, um, you know, uh, like Trump there, the Springbok tour here just brought to the surface what already existed, but no one really acknowledged, you know. And, um, uh, yeah, and uh, New Zealand is like many places in that personally I think, you know, We've got we do in some ways a very liberal and caring society. Fifty percent um, of it is, but the other fifty percent is just completely the other way. You know, kind of yeah. My viewpoint, quite conservative and mean-hearted. Yeah. Yeah, I think especially now, you know, compared to what's happening in America and certainly other countries where you're seeing that rise of extreme populism, like other countries, like Canada, is the same way. Like you, you tend to be able to you know, all the, all the sinister things that are going on here tend to, to be able to be covered up a little more easily compared to what's going on, you know, in, in, in America right now. Well, like, you know, in America, um, yeah, look, like I say, I just think it's a sport to the surface, what has always been there, you know, mm-hmm. and um, um, yeah, but it just has, it sort of has been swept under the carpet as they continue on the merry way, but you know, I was always, all of us here, we were always fascinated by America and, you know, because so much great culture came out of it. And, um, and uh, but I can remember when I first went there, you know, I was, I was you know, I was so chuffed to be there. And, um, but I can remember going there and just like being a stranger there or an alien. You know, for instance, the racial divide was just really in your face, you know, and, um, you know, New Zealand's no racial paradise, but, um, people aren't split along ethnic lines as they are in a place like that. And, uh, you know, and, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just sort of the disease of the empire, really. No offence to my American friends and the many cool people that I do know in America who are probably despairing about what's going on here. But, uh, yeah, you know, the, all this bullshit about the land of the free, well, um, I always found that completely absurd because um, if you're poor, you're not free, you know. Um, you're incredibly oppressed. And, uh and also, I don't know, if you're poor, well, you die. And uh, you die quicker because you can't afford medical care. And anyway, um, yeah, so it really struck me when I did go there, um, all that kind of stuff, you know, probably because, I, you know, I guess when you walk into a place, you uh, you have some kind of objectivity or an outsider's perspective and maybe see things a bit more clearly than the people who are stuck in the middle with it, yeah. Who, who was the first New Zealand band to tour America? Like, you know, from, from the kind of like the, the Dunedin type scene. Cause you, you go over with straight jackets, like not till the straight jacket fits. Right. That's right. Yeah. And straight jackets was sort of more of a second wave of the flying nun stuff. 
Who went there first? I think the Chills are pretty much the the first sort of international trailblazers. Like, um, you know, Martin was writing these incredible songs when he was 17 or something, you know? Yeah. And he's basically, you know, a boy genius. And, yeah. um, you know, like he wrote Pink Frost at that. Uh, all those classic early sides. He's just, he just a kid writing these amazing songs, you know? Yeah. And so they were pretty much um, the first sort of, you know, flag bearer band for the whole Flying Nun thing to go overseas. So... I think they went to London first, but I'm sure they played in the, in, in the States as well. And, um, yeah, and then um, so they sort of paved the way. But, you know, even when they went and played in England, there was still this sort of colonialist um, attitude towards New Zealanders. And, uh, you know, basically a lot of the English thought, well, if you're from New Zealand, A, you can't be an authentic rock band. And uh, so a, a lot of the, uh, you know, Early reviews, you know, I mentioned sheep, and uh, you were just about sheep, basically. <laughs> we have got a few sheep. There's a wee bit more to it than that, and yeah. you know, very, very condescending, and um, um, yeah. But I think in America, uh, the Americans weren't condescending, and they were. They, what I did like about America is that. They weren't the people we met anyway. They weren't really, you know, like in, in England they'd judge you. Oh, you're from New Zealand, so you can't be serious. But in America, it was sort of more like, well, we don't care where you're from. We're just interested in what you do. And um, yeah, the Americans seem to be more open and and seem more interested in it on this underground level as opposed to being condescending about it. Yeah. Yeah, it really feels like. Um you know, it was kind of like anyone that, that knew about music and like really got good music was into flying nun. Like, you know, going back now being a record collector, like it's amazing where these records pop up on different labels. And it's almost like with the, with the straight jacket fits, do you think it would have been better served if the band had wound up on like a, like one of the big American independent labels, as opposed to signing to a major label when you finally did kind of come over to America? Cause I'm, it, it's almost oh, like, definitely. You know, like it just it could it could have like like a matador. I know you talk about talking to Gerard Cosloy in the book, but like, have you ever thought about like maybe that would have been the play to kind of because it just those records are just so good. Oh, cheers, man. Yeah, um, yeah, oh, oh, totally. Yeah, you know, our first our first record, um, the first Straight Jackets album, you know, and our first EP was went out on Rough Trade internationally. Mm-hmm. You know, that that they were a good they were a good label, but. Yeah, you know, we started getting chased by the majors, and this is when the majors were signing anything, you know, because they had so much fucking money. And, um, uh, you know, they just sign anything and throw it at the wall. And um, there was also this weird phase of Flying Nun, too, where um, Flying Nun was bought by this um, um, Australian um, sort of major label, and it all just started getting a bit screwed up, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, A&R people... Uh, bringing in name producers, inverted commas, and all that kind of shit. And, um, yeah, and I think, you know, and that was all happening when the straight jackets were going. And, um, yeah, I have, I have, I don't actually have any good memories of my experience on a major label. We ended up on Arista and we ended up making two albums for them. And, uh, yeah, it just uh, wasn't a great marriage. And um, it actually sort of disillusioned me and the band split up, really. You got and you played Toronto, right? Because I was looking through your book and I saw a photo of you at Lee's Palace. Yeah, we played Toronto a couple of times, actually. Yeah, I like going to Canada because it was kind of quite uh, familiar, even yeah. even though 
it was quite familiar after um after America. It was like, yeah. oh, people have got lawns here and now uh, it's a bit more chilled out. And um hey, but one thing I wanted to ask you though was um what about Canadian bands as far as going to England? And you know, was there a colonialist kind of um attitude towards Canadian bands over there? I think there probably was maybe at a certain point, but I think we just blend in with Americans very easily. So for us going over there, um, you know, by the time we went over, that was the first place we got any attention as a band. Like in Canada, we were completely ignored. And then yeah. we went over to England. We actually got talked about in music press and and things like that. So I think yeah. it, I think it's kind of like a different relationship between, um, you know, Canadian bands and England and, and New Zealand bands in England. But um, you know, like, I don't like, they don't, Americans definitely make fun of Canadian bands. I find a lot more than the British bands and, and play into the, like, you know, oh, it's freezing cold up there, maple syrup type things. Um, like you're yeah. saying about the sheep. Yeah. Oh, right. It's maple syrup thing in Canada. Yeah, definitely. There's a uh, Quebec's that's the main export from uh, Quebec is in terms of food products. Oh. <laughs> Delicious maple syrup though. Absolutely phenomenal maple syrup. <laughs> I bet it is, man. You've been working on it hard. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I, and yeah. that's a stereotype. I'm I'm happy to take maple syrup eater on because I will definitely right, take okay. maple syrup. Oh, I'm off to cook my, cook my lamb chops after this. Yeah. <laughs> but I can, I, I, I can remember, um, yeah, in Toronto, our second gig, straight jacket, second visit there, we actually had an onstage fight, um, which is the only onstage fight I've ever had in a band. And um, I don't regard myself as a violent person, but uh, yeah, the relationship between me and the other singer, uh, the other singer and songwriter, um, yeah, had sort of deteriorated at that point. And um, yeah, we almost came to blows. And I actually walked off stage, and I've never walked off stage before, and mm. and or, or since. And um, so, unfortunately, that was my last um, memory of uh, of Toronto. But yeah, I could just remember throwing my guitar down um, in disgust and walking off, and it got the biggest cheer of the night. So there we go. I might pull out that move again. Well, the, the last show my band ever played was our show in New uh, our last show in New Zealand, where I got into a fight and walked off stage, stormed off stage. So once again, it's reciprocal. Uh, I guess oh, the yeah, effects right. of our countries. Right. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. And what? What are you saying? That that was the last gig you played. Well, that because because of uh, you know COVID restrictions, there hasn't been any oh, concerts cool, since. Yeah, yeah so, right. So that could very well be go, looking at how our conservative government is handling this COVID situation in Ontario. That could theoretically be the last concert I ever play. Right. Oh well, no, you. I hope not, bro. But uh, I hope not yeah. too. But. Yeah, sure. But uh, you know, it's been rough, eh? Like, well, that sort of goes beyond saying, but. Um, you know, it's been it's been rough and cataclysmic and um, traumatizing for the entire world's population, but on a kind of smaller scale, you know, it's been hard for us um, musicians not being able to play because the thing is, when you don't, well, I don't know about you, but when I don't play, I just stew in my juices and it's not good, you know. It's it's mm -hmm. kind of like you not the self validation or just doing what you do, you know, and being being who you are, you know. If you can't get that outlet, yeah, it's um. Yeah, it's um, it's harsh. I I did a show the other uh, about a month ago where I just um, did a solo set um, and uh, for over a couple of nights, and it was the first time I'd stood on a stage and played my own songs um, for about fourteen months. And um, uh, yeah, it was like, oh, that's right, that's yeah, that's who I am, that's what I do. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's, it's it's not good for musicians to be sitting around and not doing what they what they're built to do. 
Well, yeah, I was going to say, like, did it did it come back naturally? Because I'm I'm legitimately worried that it's not going to come back. Like, I'm not going to be able to do what I did before because it's been this is the longest it's ever been that I haven't done it. Oh yeah, bro. Look, it's, it's it's it is riding a bike, and the thing is, if it's there, it's always going to be there. You just got to get the debris out of the way to access it. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you know, it's been such a um, weird time for everyone. You know, oh man, you know, like the whole thing about. Um, you know, sort of, um, you want to see people, but you're scared if you're afraid to see people. And uh, I just, I just think the whole psychological ramifications of this experience is just going to linger on and on. And you know, I, I, I don't know what those ramifications are, but I'm sure, yeah, the long term sort of um, consequences, yeah, they'll they'll continue to resonate. And, um, yeah, and you know, and just the weird thing about it too is that it's this universal universally shared trauma you know so the whole planet has got this population who are feeling that same kind of fear and anxiety and uh jesus bro what an ambience you know and um uh yeah i think the thing is like you know and i and i i wasn't in new zealand so i don't know what it was like to go through it where you went through it but like because you know new zealand got through it so quickly um, I don't like the trauma that's happening now is almost like this distrust of your neighbors. The fact that, you know, now you're like, oh shit, my neighbor doesn't get it. And my neighbor's having this party or, you know, like there's, you know, government imposed things to make sure you don't have a party and all these sorts of things that have had to come about because people just failed to get on board. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, look, we had our dissenters here and I even had a couple of friends who went down the conspiracy wormhole, you know, and um, mm-hmm. Uh, 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 by you know, I'm so grateful that we had the government that we had because the the other idiots sort of just followed, you know, oh the economy, the economy, and kept everything open, and we'd be in the same place as you know, same position as you know, Britain is now, for instance, you know. Yeah. And uh, w- one thing is is that the people here bought into it, and um, you know, our lock- we went into the, one of the harshest lockdowns really early on, you know. And yeah. we had this total lockdown for six weeks, which pretty much took it out. We've, we've had a couple of sort of resurgences since, but in, in the main, you know, we've been able to carry on with our lives. There was a second lockdown in Auckland but, um, a few months ago, but after an outbreak. But, yeah, you know, our community, to our credit, did buy into it. And um, it was also explained really clearly by our government and the health officials uh, there's no t- duplicity or they were just straight up about it, you know, and yeah, and people bought into it. And um, uh, yeah, so I think, you know, we can give ourselves a pat on the back for that and that we have sort of, you know, reaped the rewards of that and that we've been able to carry on with life uh, reasonably normally, even though, you know, the pandemic's, you know, raging and banging at our door. Um, yeah, and yeah, so we pretty much snuffed it out earlier. So. And, and like I say, I'm just so glad that we had, um, you know, clear-thinking people and, and grown-ups um, in charge, you know. Yeah. Well, it's almost like all eyes are in New Zealand now. For You know, like I was, I was online today on Twitter, and there's a video clip of a festival that just happened. And, you know, in New Zealand, all these people are dancing to that song, How Bizarre. And it was just I, like millions of people, you know, envying dancing to this song from the 90s this dance song that i i would never want to dance to it but like i i would definitely want to be at that show right now and it's well, you'd definitely be yeah be with a lot of people having a dance sure yeah yeah, yeah like it feels yeah. like 
everyone, you know, now I, I don't know, like I'm hoping if, if there's like one small sort of like silver lining on this from a cultural standpoint is that, you know, now that all this attention's on New Zealand is that, you know, more attention is going to be put on this incredible music that's that's happening that's able to happen there but that this whole history of this incredible music because i don't know i just meet people and i'm constantly like how do you not know about this flying nun stuff but i was the same way like i i worked at a video store and luckily my manager had a couple cds and he would play them for me and it really actually if i'm being honest wasn't until i bought a double happies 45 your first single off some guy and oh, cool. got that home and it just hit me like this is this is the greatest country on earth, like the New Zealand bloodline of films and then all this incredible music and plus all that great lamb to eat. So <laughs> that's right. Oh, you are cool, man. Yeah. Um, um, nice one. What can it, I yeah. It, I just wanted to find out, I guess, going back to, you know, the, the transition from um, board games to double happies. I know we're going way back now, but um, uh-huh. was there like a, a musical taste shift that happened for you because like you know like it's not that the double happies aren't punk because that's still coming through i find for myself yeah. but there is a different sonic there yeah sure um well like i say that was when um wayne who i formed wayne elsie who i formed the double happies with he was an old school friend i've known wayne since i was 12 um he was actually in my first band board games but he didn't uh he left by the time um uh, he left sort of early on or not or halfway through and was replaced by a guy called Cherry Moore who ended up in the chills and being a producer, etc. Uh, Wayne drifted off and formed a band called The Stones, um, great name. And uh, uh, yeah, and then um, they split up and um, yeah, Wayne and I, um, we'd fallen out for a bit there and then we made up again and uh, you decided to form a band together. And, um yeah, the musical shift, yeah, I guess so. Like I say, at that point, we were discovering stuff like, yeah, like I say, uh, the Double Happies were sort of, we liked, we loved a lot of that sort of um, garage punk stuff, you know, from the 60s and, uh, uh, you know, and like I say, uh, the you know, early cramps, like we were a guitar band, two guitars with no bass player, and the cramps sort of showed us that you could do that. And... Um, yeah, when we started off, we were uh, as two two um, teen brat guitars and a and a really dodgy Casio tone drum machine. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so and also, you know, I guess um, you know that was when the whole flying on thing was sprouting up around us. So, you know, we were going out and seeing bands like the Clean and the Verlaines and the Chills, and um, uh, and we were probably just as inspired. In fact, we, we were. We were more inspired by what was going on at home than anything was going coming from overseas because, as I said earlier, it was right in our face and we were going out and seeing it every weekend. So um, I think, yeah, the Double Happies were probably more a reaction to what was going on around us. But also, um, you know, when we, when we, when we, the Double Happies started, we'd never played out of Dunedin. And in some ways, it was just a form of social revenge for me and Wayne. <laughs> so that's pretty much our prime motivation and uh yeah you know and we'll, look we just get real drunk and take the piss out of the audience and um but uh yeah you know we, we really meet it and um yeah um yeah well one of the, my favorite quote about the uh, double happies was um, Roy Colbert um 
writing, uh, who I mentioned earlier, um, he wrote some liner notes and said, uh, this is the sound you make when you're in love with electric guitars and think other people are full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much how the template for the double happies. He was right on with that one. Yeah. Um, where did that sort of twangy surf guitar influence come from on that? Because it does have that, like, oh, the guitars, the tone is so beautiful on that record, that first 45, especially. Oh, yeah. Well, David Kilgour from The Clean, he was kind of, um, as far as that kind of sound, Mm-hmm. When, I was, when I was talking about earlier about the board games record and how I sort of thought uh, things had moved on around us, well, David's guitar sound, where he had a, he had a gun amp and uh, with the reverb turned to full, the treble turned to full and the bass right off. And he was playing, we were playing in community halls that were wooden, so the echo was amazing. And, you know, they were our prime venues where we played. So it'd just be this amazing swirling reverb shredding sound you know just um swirling around these rooms and uh it was, it was a great guitar sound and david is a surfer and um really early on the clean were doing stuff like um you know covering the james bond thing you know ding, 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 ding. so and you know if you hear a lot of david's lines like you almost sound like the james bond theme so yeah he was a really uh influential figure as you know on um or, you know, really inspired a lot of us other guitar players as well. I know Graham, when uh, Graham Downs, when he started the Verlaines, you know, they were basically, he was, at that point, Graham was studying Marla symphonies at university, but he also liked the Sex Pistols and he loved the Queen. And um, so the second wave of Dunedin bands are the Verlaines, the Rip, the Stones, uh, and probably the Double Happies, you know, were all really influenced by the Queen, who, you know, we're a great band. Yeah, like it's it's I don't know like, like you hear about that once again about Seattle. People talk about you know how the isolation and bands not coming through influence the sound. And I've I found a lot of people that come on this podcast from Florida, like almost like the isolation of Florida had the same effect. And I think that's probably way more intense in New Zealand. And it's amazing how just this sort of like internal influence just creates all these sorts of expressions because none of your bands sound the same too like you're all doing something completely unique but in a, a uniform way i don't know if that makes any sense at all i'm sorry but but you're, yeah, you're, yeah, no, no, exactly well we all have the same tools you know like yeah. um all sorts of guitar bands uh you know we all had sort of really similar influences and uh yeah for sure and i, I completely agree and um it always used to annoy us, you know, because, you know, inevitably, especially internationally, all the bands get lumped together, you know, and uh, it just didn't give, you know, I really do believe that even though we had similar tools and, and similar touchstones, uh, you know, each individual uh, songwriter and, and, and the bands, you know, were sort of off on their own tangent or their own version of that. And you, you're totally right. So within that sort of narrow construct uh, of circumstance, there was actually sort of, quite divergent musical expressions yeah and it's almost like there's like a like it's almost like the influence of the enemy went two ways like it went to to create these bands like you know these these bands that are like pop masters perfect pop bands but then it also creates like sort of this kind of punishment and the skeptics and sort of like a much more noisy aggressive kind of a noise noise influence i guess pin back yeah and- yeah, sure. Well, you know, the, the, they, you know, those bands you mentioned, they sort of were off on their own tangent as well. You know, like uh, the Skeptics, man. I, I you know, I, 
I've never, though, a, a, a really unique band, you know. You, you went and saw them and was like, what the fuck is this, you know? And <laughs> like, it's a really weird band. And um, they came up with this actually quite beautiful, really angular music, you know. And, um, yeah, uh, yeah, man, look, there's, there's lots of different trips. I think the main thing was that even though people were dealing in songs and recognisably songs, there was always a progressive bent to the the songwriting people were trying shit you know mm-hmm. and uh yeah people tried shit you know and um so there's always sort of this sort of um almost quasi psychedelic exploratory thing to these pop songs you know they were just a bit weird and a bit twisted and but that's why they sounded different you know and that's what gave them their individual flavor and um yeah the combination of people trying stuff because as i said earlier too it didn't matter if it didn't work because there's no around to, to witness that and um uh yeah and just encouraging each other not to be conservative musically and um yeah to try stuff and to be brave about it you know and once again it's, it's easy to be brave when you think no one's listening yeah yeah D- did any bands come through like did were any of the australian bands like the saints or radio birdman or like did any international punk bands come through to travel uh, I saw the Boomtown Rats. That was the closest thing to an international punk rock band. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that, that was about it. And uh, uh, sorry, I've just got someone coming to the door, waving. Oh, no and uh, you know, just waving. Yeah. Um, uh, but as far as maybe the Ramones came in the late seventies or something. Uh, the members uh, they came out. I can remember them coming over in the, around the same time. Um, I don't know if they were punk. Uh, solitary confinement was a pretty punk song. Great song, yeah. Great song. Um, yeah, but no, not really. Um, yeah, look, uh, we're so far away that a lot of bands just went to Australia and never bothered coming to New Zealand. And, yeah, um, that's still the case to a certain degree. Um, you know, and if they do come to New Zealand, they'll play in Auckland, and, and, and that's about it. But no, we, uh, yeah, apart from maybe the Ramones and. I know the Cure a wee bit later on. They, I think they came in the, in the early seventies, but no, not a lot. Sort of made it over over there, and, uh, over here. It's a, it's it's amazing how, you know, like it is like somewhere all these bands want to go, but it's just so hard to get there. And then once you get there, yeah, you only really get to play the two shows. Like I, I would love to have toured there for two weeks. Yeah, oh, of course, man. Yeah, well, but you know, it was this, it's this, it's the same, or it was the same for us going over there. You know, or going to the northern hemisphere. It was just so expensive to get there. Um, I suppose you know, that's the great thing about the internet now, and that you know you've got kids producing records in their bedroom in Auckland who that become you know like something like Lord, you know, she was just this kid uh, doing her stuff in her bedroom, and she, you know, of the internet, she became sort of an international star. But back in the old days, where your only sort of way of of getting across to people was to actually be there and be playing to them yeah it just cost it was too far away it cost too much money we didn't have major label money behind us we had to do it off our own back or we didn't have any money behind us and um we had to yeah do it ourselves and also the thing is too is that because it was so difficult to get there you know you might get there and play some killer shows but there's just no way of following it up so you know it could be two or three years until you got back and um so yeah it was um the, the tyranny of distance someone described it as and it was pretty much the way it was you know the rest of the world is a i don't know it's a 36 hour plane flight to london from here 
um, you know, going to the States or, uh, I mean, it's 20 hours or something. And, uh, yeah, it's just, um, it's a very long way. Well, Shane, I've kept you for a very long time and I could punish you forever with this uh, conversation. Would you come back at some point and do a part two? Totally, man. Totally up for it. Yeah. Um, I just, before I, I let you go though, uh, one thing I was kind of wondering, is it, does it feel at all validating? Like anytime I go anywhere and I mention how much I love flying nun to someone from New Zealand, their eyes light up and it's, it's such a point of pride. Like, is there a form of validation? Like you, you know, from going from this guy that had to worry about being attacked by carboys and, and being part of a scene that was, you know, tormented by these people to becoming almost like the, uh, the main cultural export to to certain people all over the world like is there some, is there validation in that for you or is it is it still like you know are you still resenting these car boys at this point oh no of course not no it is a it, it is a yeah it is a validation i don't know man look being an artist or a musician as any artist or musician knows it's fucking hard man you know there's not these harder gigs in the world but uh you know it's um it's it takes a lot of commitment you know I and mean, there's a lot of discouragement not uh you know and uh, or a lot of encouragement to not do it you know and um so it's always going to be a battle just even to um um to pursue that especially if you're not um you know a hugely you know huge selling or you know internationally successful mainstream artist but um i don't know the only thing that you can what i've learned i've done it for decades now is that your best stuff is always you speaking your truth and um, if you try to imagine, you know, what someone else's truth is and try to appeal to that, well, you're, you're not going to do anything good. But if it's true to you and um, there's going to be other people dotted around the planet or like-minded people or like-minded spirits and souls who feel exactly the same way and, um, and they hear that, they relate to that, you know. And um, so that is validating, you know. So when I hear from people from the other side of the planet um, you know, who dig shit that I've done. Fuck you, it's completely rewarding, man, even on a sort of quite minor, modest scale, you know, because the whole thing about doing doing music is to connect with other people, even though you might be quite an alienating person. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it is. And, you know, the beauty of music is that it's this communal experience, you know, where everyone fucking digs the same thing, you know, and it, it makes you feel less alone on the planet, you know, and um, fuck, that's a really important feeling to have, you know, and um, so yeah, so and any contribution I've made to that, well, right on, man, and um, yeah, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't own my own house, you know, I've never had any financial security and all that kind of stuff, but as I say to my friends, you know, you're not going to be reading your fucking bank statement on your deathbed. But, uh, you know, if you've made a rock and tune, that's going to outlive you, you know. And, um, hey, brother, that's a beautiful thing. Well, anytime you want to come back on this show, please know the door is always open. Totally up to it, bro. Let's do part two soon. Thank you, Shane, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Shane will be back for a part two because I got a lot more questions to go to. Oh, there, uh, I, hopefully, if you weren't familiar with that stuff, you are now inspired to go check it out. The fantastic Captured Tracks Records 
out of New York has done a fantastic job of reissuing a lot of this stuff. Uh, I don't know. I don't think they've done a double happies yet or, or the board games thing, but they have, they've definitely done a lot of great reissues of, of groups on flying nun records. So this stuff is accessible. Go out and find this stuff. This is the best music in the world. Like it is so good. And there's so many incredible bands like the chills, the clean, all of Shane's bands. Uh, just, I, it, it could go on. Like you just, it really is unending. Um, Okay, that's it. I'm, I, I could go on just gushing, gushing and gushing. And I, I got a lot to get to in this extra. I do, because we got to talk about what's coming up next week on the show. And, and next week on the show, I think it might very well be the best episode ever of Turned Out of Punk from a conversation perspective. And I know that's putting a lot of pressure on it, but oh my gosh, this thing is, it's, it's certainly the longest episode of Turned Out of Punk ever. Next week on the show, well, I guess before I get to who's on the next show, I got to start it off with a little bit of a, a thank you. One of the most rewarding things about doing this podcast has been uh, getting to know John Worcester. Obviously, I'm a huge fan of him as a comedian and as a musician playing in some of my favorite bands. You can go back and check out his episodes, but he is also um, a music nerd <laughs> beyond reproach. You know, he's someone that I just respect his taste and stuff so much. Like he's someone who's when he's on tour, will go out of his way to take the photo at some obscure recording studio, just because some great punk single was recorded there or some punk albums recorded there. Like he's that kind of deep head. So the fact that he likes this podcast and is always willing to come aboard for some of my, my schemes and, and appear on this thing in character and, and do stuff with this thing has been truly one of the best things about doing this podcast. But I now have to add incredible guest booker to his resume because John hit me up a couple weeks back and said, Hey, I just reconnected with a friend of mine and I think he'd be a really great guest for the show and he's a big fan of the podcast. And, and I, you know, I was in shock because next week coming up on the show, uh, after John Worcester booked it, but by, by, you know, because he's a fan, Bill Hader is coming on the podcast. Yep. That's right. From, from Barry, from SNL, from every movie my kids like, uh, truly one of my favorite, like Barry is one of my favorite TV shows. It's probably my favorite TV show. And it turns out he listens to this little old podcast and wanted to come on here. And boy, he and I talk and talk. It is a fun, long conversation that I'm very excited for you to listen to. And that is coming up uh, in, a, in a few days. I might have said next week on the show. I meant next episode because um, I'm, I'm putting this thing out in, in a few short days. It's a monster of an edit, but <laughs> it's, it's a long one. It is a long one. All right. That's it. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids and we need to help trans people protect themselves. Uh, go out there, get informed, read about what's happening in this world, read about what people are dealing with. Uh, if you can donate money to people that need it, you know, obviously donate money. If you can donate time, donate time to do what you can. Fuck Nazis, smash fascism. Like that's, it's a no brainer. I don't think that's even a political thing. That's just like a, a real thing. Like that shit sucks. No one wants that shit around. Like, fuck it. Um, sign your organ donor cards because you don't need that stuff by the time they come looking for it. Just go, you know what? Take that. It Take it. 
Get this out of me. I don't need it. I'm dead. It's just more shit for them to deal with. Whatever they're going to do with my body. I'm saying morbid, but just sign your organ donor cards. Go there and make your own culture. Anyone can do this. Anyone can start a podcast. Anyone can start a band. This shit is, obviously, you need time and, and resources and things like that. But uh, th- those hurdles aside, anyone can do this stuff. Like, the actual, like, act itself, anyone can do this stuff. And then you never know where it leads, you know? Next thing you know, you're talking to people that you're, like, a huge fan of. And, uh, yeah, I, I really, I can't stress enough. Go out there and, and, and make culture. And you, you don't have to share it with the world either. It could just be for you. Just doing something creative just helps your mental health. Uh, uh, Wear a mask. um, Be safe. Uh, Listen to Oil and Flowers with my my buddy Buddha Blades and I, our cannabis show. Definitely check that out on the Oil and Flowers feed. Buddha's been, been growing this thing, you know. It's growing like a weed, Oil and Flowers. Uh, and then, and then, um, and that's, and that's, that's, that's it until, uh, till next episode. It's a doozy. It's a good one. Check out some flying nun stuff. Check out Shane Carter's bands. The guy's a genius. <laughs>